0: The following program has been made possible by the IAAIS Program Exchange. Now, The American Past, produced and narrated by University of Kansas Journalism Professor Emeritus, Calder Pickett.
1: This is the first in a series of American Past Hours, in which I'll go back and talk about the first 13 years of this century. And that will mean that I'll have offered an hour on each of the years up to the present. 1900. A time of high hopes, of great expectations, that number 19 seeming to symbolize the future for many Americans. Still, the good old days in many ways, or what people have come to think were the good old days, my summary will assure you that all wasn't good in those ancient times. The great song standards of the gay 90s were being sung along with the new songs of 1900. I will offer a number of these for you, though for the most part they won't be, for obvious reasons, recordings of 1900. Grand Songs Like Paul Dresser's Ever-Loving on the Banks of the Wabash by the Gaslight Singers. ¶¶
0: Lessons Nature School.
1: Paul Dresser, brother of the famous Theodore Dreiser, and a word on that man later on. 1900. High Hopes. Walter Lord, in his Social History the Good Years, told about some of them. Prosperity was only part of the story. An endless stream of exciting discoveries offered concrete evidence of the abundant life ahead. The new x-ray was revolutionizing surgery. Walter Reed's experiments might end yellow fever The caterpillar tractor would lighten farm work. The gramophone and pianola would bring joy to the home. Electricity promised untold wonders. Not just light, but help on all sorts of household chores. Some man had even invented a toaster. Best of all was the motor car. Its growth had been phenomenal. On April 1, 1898, an adventuresome soul bought the first American machine ever made specifically for sale. By 1900, some 8,000 cars sputtered about the country. Over 100 taxis graced the streets of New York. Chicago even had a motor ambulance. And statements, too, from the kings of finance. And the biggest of the kings was John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil.
2: It is too late to argue about the advantages of industrial combinations. They are a necessity. I speak from my experience in the business with which I have been intimately connected for about 40 years. Our first combination was a partnership and afterwards a corporation in Ohio. That was sufficient for a local refining business. But dependent solely upon local business, we should have failed years ago. We were forced to extend our markets and to seek for export trade. Every step taken was necessary in the business if it was to be properly developed. And only through such successive steps and by such an industrial combination is America today enabled to utilize the bounty which its land pours forth and to furnish the world with the best and cheapest light ever known, receiving in return, therefore, from foreign lands nearly $50 million per year. Most of which is distributed in payment of American labor.
1: John D. Rockefeller, 1900, and the population of America was 76 million. Many big cities New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, St. Louis, San Francisco. Many small towns, and much of the life was rural. Despite the high hopes, there was still much disease, and an epidemic could be devastating. No air conditioning, still not a whole lot of electricity, much outdoor plumbing. The good old days. Prosperity, complacency, industrialism, social change. There were 45 states, the newest being Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah. Illiteracy was declining. There were 193,000 miles of railroad tracks. We were still debating the Spanish-American War of two years earlier and becoming expansionist in our braggadocio. You could buy eggs for 12 cents a dozen, sirloin steak for 24 cents a pound, a turkey dinner for 20 cents. Taxes were low. There was much assurance of a brilliant future in this new 20th century. One of the spokesmen was a rising politician, Theodore Roosevelt, who had become the man of the decade. Here are his words. I preach
2: to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. The 20th century looms before us big with the fate of many nations. Let us therefore boldly face the life of strife, resolute to do our duty well and manfully. Above all, let us shrink from no strife, moral or physical, within or without the nation, provided we are certain that the strife is justified. For it is only through strength, through hard and dangerous endeavor, that we shall ultimately win the goal of true national greatness.
1: In 1900, the Hall of Fame was established at New York University. The university sent out nominations to a 100 judges, and these are the first people who were chosen. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Webster, Benjamin Franklin, Ulysses S. Grant, John Marshall, Thomas Jefferson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Robert Fulton, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Washington Irving, Jonathan Edwards, Samuel F. B. Morse, David Farragut, Henry Clay, George Peabody, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Peter Cooper, Eli Whitney, Robert E. Lee, Horace Mann, John J. Audubon, James Kent, Henry Ward Beecher, Joseph Story, John Adams, William Ellery Channing, Gilbert Stewart, and Asa Gray. Tastes of 1900, and that was the order of the voting. And I confess that there are a couple on that list that I just couldn't identify. And in 1900, the famous Who's Who in America was established. And we know Who's Who much more today than we know the Hall of Fame. We'll Cakewalk music of, at a Georgia camp. I mentioned Theodore Dreiser a while back, the Indiana boy who became one of our most famous novelists. In 1900, Doubleday published his shocking novel, Sister Carrie, and then withdrew the disgraceful book from publication. Carrie was a woman of easy virtue, one possibly modeled on one of Dreiser's sisters. Carrie was far from triumphant at the end of the novel. Oh, the tangle of human life! How dimly as yet we see. Here was Carrie, in the beginning poor, unsophisticated, emotional, responding with desire to everything most lovely in life, yet finding herself turned as by a wall. Laws to say, Be a lord, if you will, by everything lovely, but draw not nigh unless by righteousness. Convention to say, You shall not better your situation save by honest labor. Amid the tinsel and shine of her state what Carrie, unhappy... As when Drouet took her, she had thought, now I am lifted into that which is best. As when Hurstwood seemingly offered her the better way, now I am happy. But since the world goes its way past all who will not partake of its folly, she now found herself alone. In her walks on Broadway, she no longer thought of the elegance of the creatures who passed her.
3: The night that I struck New York, I went out for a quiet walk. Folks who are on to the city say better by far that I took Broadway. But I was out to enjoy the sights. There was the Bowery ablaze with lights. I had one of the devil's own nights. I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery, they say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery. I'll never go there anymore. I had walked but a block or two when up came a fellow and me he knew.
1: Then the policeman came
3: walking by, chased him away and I asked him why. Wasn't he pulling your leg? Said he, said I, he never laid hands on me. Get off the Bowery, you yet, said he, I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery, they say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery, I'll never go there anymore. I went into a barber shop. He talked till I thought that he'd never stop. I cut it short. He misunderstood. Clipped down my hair just as close as he could. He shaved with a razor that scratched like a pin. Took off my whiskers and most of my chin. That was the worst scrape I'd ever been in. I'll never go there anymore. I struck. A place that they called a dive. I was in luck to get out alive. When the policeman heard of my woes, Saw my black eye and my battered nose. You've been held up, said the copper fly. No, sir, but I've been knocked down, said I. Then he laughed, though I couldn't see why. I'll never go there. The they say such things, and they do, drink, sleep on the Bowery. The Bowery, I'll never go there anymore.
1: And a song of the arrows, Sister Carrie, by Percy Gaunt and Charles Hoyt. Richard Perry, the vocalist. It had been in the hit show, A Trip to Chinatown. Literary history would name Sister Carrie the preeminent novel of 1900, I suppose. In that year, Jack London brought out some of his short stories, Son of the Wolf. Theodore Roosevelt's essays, The Strenuous Life appeared. The philosopher Josiah Royce produced The World and the Individual. A romantic novel, Maurice Thompson's Alice of Old Vincennes, and Irving Bachelor's Eben Holden. Mary Johnston's To Have and To Hold. Robert Grant's Unleavened Bread. One that was vastly popular was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, and you all know about that one. The Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman and the Lion now thanked the good witch earnestly for her kindness, and Dorothy exclaimed, You are certainly as good as you are beautiful, but you have not yet told me how to get back to Kansas. Your silver shoes will carry you over the desert, replied Glinda. If you had known their power, you could have gone back to your Aunt M the very first day you came to this country. But then I should not have had my wonderful brain, cried the Scarecrow. I might have passed my whole life in the farmer's cornfield. And I should not have had my lovely heart, said the tin woodman. I might have stood rusted in the forest till the end of the world. And I should have lived a coward forever, declared the lion, and no beast in all the forest would have had a good word to say to me.
0: I love you now, as I loved you when you were sweet sixteen. Sweet sweet sixteen.
4: When first I saw the love
5: light in.
6: Not but joy for
0: me, but joy for me. And even though we drifted far
5: apart, so far
6: apart I never dream but what I dreamed.
0: As I never loved before, yes, loved before. Since first I met you on the village green, come to me, or my dream of love Love is all,
6: my dream is all. I love you.
1: James Thornton's Beloved Song, done for us by the Mellow Man. One of the literary successes of 1900 was a long tale by Mark Twain, the man that corrupted Hadleyburg, one done in the increasingly pessimistic tone that was marking the writing of our greatest literary figure. In the drift of time, Hadleyburg had the ill luck to offend a passing stranger, possibly without knowing it, certainly without caring, for Hadleyburg was sufficient unto itself. "'and cared not a rap for strangers or their opinion. "'Still it would have been well to make an exception in this one's case, "'for he was a bitter man and revengeful. "'All through his wanderings, during a whole year he kept his injury in mind "'and gave all his leisure moments "'to trying to invent a compensating satisfaction for it. "'He contrived many plans, and all of them were good, "'but none of them was quite sweeping enough. "'The poorest of them would hurt a great many individuals.' what he wanted was a plan which would comprehend the entire town and not let so much as one person escape unhurt. And one of the year's most popular novels was a kind of Indiana tale moved to France, a slight little thing by Booth Tartan called Monsieur Beaucaire. It became a standard in the new century. The young Frenchman did very well what he had planned to do. His guess that the Duke would cheat proved good as the unshod half-dozen figures that had been standing noiselessly in the entryway stole softly into the shadows of the chamber. He leaned across the table and smilingly plucked a card out of the big Englishman's sleeve. Merci, Monsieur Le Duc, he laughed, rising and stepping back from the table. The Englishman cried out, It means the dirty work of silencing you with my bare hands, and came at him. Do not move, said Monsieur Beaucaire so sharply that the other paused. Observe behind you. The Englishman turned and saw what trap he had blundered into. Monsieur Beaucaire remarked, indicating the silent figures by a polite wave of the hand, Is it not a compliment to monsieur that I procure six large men to subdue him?
4: While the shot and shell were screaming Upon the battlefield The boys in blue were fighting Their noble flag to shield Came a cry from their brave captain Look, boys, our flag is down Who'll volunteer to save it from disgrace? I will, a young voice shouted I'll bring it back or die Then sprang into the thickest of the fray Saved the flag but gave his young life All for his country's sake They brought him back And softly heard him say Just break the news mother. She knows how dear I love her. And tell her not to wait for me, for I'm not coming home. Just say place of mother, then kiss her dear sweet
0: lips for me.
1: Weeping Melody of the time, a popular one from the recent war, by Charles K. Harris. Robert Sands and Trio offered it for us. 1900 was the year of the terrible tidal wave that devastated Galveston, Texas. William Randolph Hearst's sob sister, Winifred Black, who called herself Annie Laurie, wrote about it for the New York Journal. The engineer who brought our train down from Houston spent the night before groping around in the wrecks on the beach, looking for his wife and three children. He found them, dug a rude grave in the sand, and set up a little board marked with his name. Then he went to the railroad company and begged them to let him go to work. The man in front of me on the card floated all Monday night with his wife and mother on a part of the roof of his little home. He told me that he kissed his wife goodbye at midnight and told her that he could not hold on any longer. But he did hold on, dazed and half conscious, until the day broke and showed him that he was alone on his piece of dried wood. He did not even know when the women that he loved had died. Six thousand lives were taken in that storm, one of the worst in American history. The composer Victor Herbert conducted a concert at Madison Square Garden for relief funds. Nineteen hundred was a year for monumental stories. Fire destroyed the docks of steamship companies at Hoboken, New Jersey. and hundred forty-five people died. A mine explosion in Schofield, Utah, killed two hundred. Governor William Goebel of Kentucky was assassinated. And there was a presidential election, the incumbent William McKinley of Ohio, facing William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska, his opponent of four years earlier. McKinley's running mate was the rising Theodore Roosevelt, and Bryan's was Adlai Stevenson of Illinois. We have an ancient recording of the McKinley voice on the campaign trail.
7: My fellow citizens, Recent events have imposed upon the patriotic people of this country a responsibility and a duty greater than that of any since the Civil War. Then it was a struggle to preserve the government of the United States. Now it is a struggle to preserve the financial honor of the government. Our priest embraces an honest dollar, an unpunished national credit, Adequate revenues for the uses of the government, protection to labor and industry, preservation of the whole market, and reciprocity, which will extend our foreign markets. <coughs> upon this platform, we stand and submit its declaration to the sober and considerate judgment of the American people.
1: And there were campaign songs in those good old days. And you should be told, though the name of McKinley doesn't loom large in the history of the presidency, that he was still a mighty popular fellow. We here hooray for Bill McKinley.
0: Things are wearing a warm coat. But McKinley is going to win. He'll be the
3: hero of this election. The way he'll beat them will be a sin. He will smash them to such
0: perfection, they can never get up again. Mac and Teddy are going to win this political fight, and that is right. Cause the questions that
3: now are pending and are causing contortions of the brain can only be settled by a cool headed man like Mac. William Bryan's campaign is ending, we'll have no Democrat to reign. For you know that good times is something they always lack, and that's a fact. But there's no use of our going round it, Bill McKinley's the winning thing. And it's certainly too amusing to see those dummies are trying to sing. And when everything is excitement, and that good old election's done, and we've got it, the votes for Mac and Teddy will have victory, and to Oh, there will me a grand procession and keep walking to beat the band. Such parading with horse lights blazing, hailing good times for Uncle Sam. And whenever I meet a me, I don't care
1: if he kills me dead. I'll yell hooray for Bill McKinley and the brave rough Rider Ted. McKinley's campaign manager was Mark Hanna already known to readers of the Hearst Papers, for the cartoons that showed him wearing suits covered with dollar signs. We hear the words that Mark Hanna uttered during that full dinner pail campaign year. Everybody's gone crazy. What
2: is the matter with all of them? Here's this convention going headlong for Roosevelt, for vice president. Don't any of you realize that there's only one life between that madman and the presidency?
1: It was a sweep for Bill McKinley, who defeated Bryan by 860,000 votes. Under McKinley, we had gone to war with Spain and had acquired the Philippines, and there was rebellion there. General Arthur MacArthur granted amnesty to the insurgents, and a commission headed by William Howard Taft reached Manila and organized a government for the islands. But Emilio Aguinaldo continued the insurrection. Still heavily in the consciousness of enlightened Americans, were the moving words of William Von Moody an Ode in a Time of Hesitation. East,
8: West, and South and North, beautiful armies. Oh, by the sweet blood and young shed on the awful hill slope at San Juan, by the unforgotten names of eager boys who might have tasted girls' love and been stung with the old mystic joys and starry griefs, now the spring nights come on, but that the heart of youth is generous. We charge you, ye who lead us, breathe on their chivalry no hint of stain. Turn not their new world victories
1: to gain. The United States of America, a new imperial power. In 1900, the Hawaiian Islands became a U.S. territory. The Foraker Act was passed establishing civilian government for Puerto Rico, also acquired in the war with Spain. Dr. Walter Reed and his group began their study of yellow fever at Camp Lazear in Cuba. Secretary of State John Hay said that Germany, Russia, Great Britain, Italy, and Japan all accepted our open-door policy, which said that we had rights to thrust ourselves about in the world just as those other nations had their rights. And in China there was the Boxer Rebellion, the boxers being a Chinese patriotic society called Fist of Righteous Harmony, a society bent on throwing out all the foreign devils. On May 31st, a relief train arrived in Peking from Tianjin with detachments of American, British, Russian, French, Italian, and Japanese Marines. 340 men, all told, but the rebellion continued. In America, the Socialist Party came into being. The House of Representatives unseated Representative Brigham H. Roberts of Utah on grounds that he was a practicing polygamist. Polygamy had kept Utah out of the Union for almost half a century. It was the year when the gold dollar was standardized, and it was a year for Carey Nation of Kansas, the hatchet wielder who hated Demon Run. The Topeka Daily Capital told how Carey, president of the Barber County Woman's Christian Temperance Union, raided saloons in Wichita and found herself in jail. "'I am a law-abiding citizen, "'and I have not gone out of the bounds of the law,' Mrs. Nation said. "'I have a husband who is a lawyer, "'and he says they cannot prosecute me.'"
8: And it's a he with me, my lads, And it's a he with me, it is a draft of nut brown milk I offer all to ye. All oh, hopping in the tankard as it cheers the heart forlorn. Oh, here's a friend to everyone. Tis stout John Barley Corn, sir.
1: Reginald DeKoven's Robin Hood, a hit of the time. Michael Van Engen was our singer. Kansas made other newspaper news in 1900, for that was the year when the Topeka minister, Charles Sheldon, author of the vastly successful inspirational novel, In His Steps, talked the daily capital into letting him run the paper for a week as Jesus would have done it. Ed Howe, editor of the Atchison Globe, forecast what one story would be like in that saintly newspaper. Behold, it came to pass that Corbett and Jeffreys did even meet in the ring yesterday. And, lo, Jeffreys girded up his loins, and encompassed Corbett round about, and smote him with great potency. And Corbett lifted up his voice, and cried, Why sluggest thou me? And, behold, Jeffreys grew exceedingly wrath, and smote his antagonist, hip and thigh, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet." Ye, the boiler maker, shall even give the pompadour some dizzy pokes. Robert McDowell's Familiar to a Wild Rose, which was being played on a good many pianos at the turn of the century, Archie or Balsam at our piano, and a variety of other items in the news. Carnegie Tech was established in Pittsburgh, with funds from the great Andrew, who was really giving away the money about then. The Associated Press was founded, the modern-day AP, coming together from a grouping of Associated Presses to combat the competition. Melville Stone of the Chicago Daily News became the first general manager of the new organization. A magazine called World's Work was founded. The comic strips were very popular in the mass newspapers. And in 1900, Frederick B. Opper started one called Happy Hooligan, and it lasted for a long time. A new invention called the Kodak was making life pleasant for many Americans. Family groups on the front porches, mother baking pies for Thanksgiving, a picture taken in a lumberyard, when at Uncle Herman's in the country. No sports stories in 1900 even remotely comparable to those of today, but it was the year when a diplomat, Dwight Davis, donated the Davis Cup trophy, and the first Davis Cup match, tennis, of course, was held, and the U.S. won over the British Isles. The Western League of Baseball became the American League. There was Olympics Games in 1900 in Paris, and America was triumphant. Jim Jeffries, the fellow I mentioned a while back, was our boxing champ. There was quite a controversy in the theater over a play called Sappho. Sappho was an adaptation by Clyde Fitch of a novel by Alphonse Daudet and opened with a star named Olga Nethersoul. The play was regarded by some as being immoral and the theater was closed and Olga was arrested and went to work in Arthur Wing Pinero's The Second Mrs. Tanqueray once also regarded as being scandalous. Woman suffragists and others took up the cause of Sappho, along with such writers as Arthur of Brisbane of the Hearst Papers, and a petition went to the mayor, and there was a trial that lasted three days, and Olga was cleared, and Sappho, was shown again, and was even revived. It was probably no more scandalous than Victor Herbert's The Fortune Teller, which had given us this enduring melody a year or so earlier. Slumber on my little gypsy sweetheart. My parents, born in the 1890s, used to sing this one in my childhood. The American theater was prospering, but it was not the storied theater of a few years later. Henrik Ibsen's The Master Builder had its American showing. There were two versions of the Romans and Christians' literary epic, Quo Vadis. Augustus Thomas offered one called Arizona, and Winston Churchill, the American Winston Churchill, had permitted his Richard Carvel to become a drama. The old trotting horse tale, David Haram, was on the stage, and a musical called Fiddle Dee, Dee and Edmund Rostan's Leglone, with Maud Adams, and The Sunken Bell, and Janice Meredith, and The Casino Girl, and San Toy. One of the most popular of the shows was by Owen Hall and Leslie Stewart, Floridora, with the Floridora Girls. And we were showing our artistic appreciation by giving attention to the prelude in E-flat by Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff, or his music, anyway. In Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the Bach Choir was founded by the Moravians there, and they did the Bach B Minor Mass. An opera by Nicola Spinelli, a Busso Porto, was performed in St. Louis. The Metropolitan Opera Company did its first opera in English, Esmeralda, by an Englishman, Arthur Thomas. Louise Homer and Fritzie Schaff made their operatic debuts that year. And what a gallery of song. Hear these titles. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, the blue and the gray, recalling the still recent war between North and South, calling to her boy just once again, goodbye, Dolly Gray, just because she made damn goo-goo eyes. Quiller has the brains, a title that intrigues me somewhat, the tale of the kangaroo, violets, the years at the spring, and you can't keep a good man down. And these two were being played about as frequently as any we can assume, The Singing Waiters and Frank Duvall. the truly beloved, one by Chauncey Alcott and one by Maude Nugent. In 1900, an engineer on the Illinois Central, one John Luther Casey Jones, died in the Cannonball Express near Vaughan, Mississippi, to save his passengers from a collision. Wallace Saunders wrote a ballad about Casey, and a few years later it became one of the greatly popular American songs, and we'll be playing it on another hour this year. And the band of John Philip Sousa toured Europe. And there's reason to believe that one of the popular numbers would have been Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, a march that could truly symbolize the year of high hopes, 1900. And here is the Sousa band itself on the Great March, and this has been the story of 1900. One more of those memorable time periods in the American past.